0: Welcome back. You are looking at the scenes as Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders was confronted over the weekend at a rally in Seattle by protesters from the city's Black Lives Matter chapter, seconds after Sanders—
1: Mid-August 2015, Marissa Johnson, one of the co-founders of the Seattle chapter of Black Lives Matter, seized the mic from Senator Bernie Sanders days after the first anniversary of the shooting of Michael Brown the 18-year-old black man, by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Here's a little more tape from that day.
2: Thank you, Seattle, for being one of the
0: most progressive cities in the United States of America.
1: Marissa Johnson and Mara Williford, another protester, got onto the stage, and Bernie steps back. The two women argue with the rally organizers, but after a few minutes, Marissa gets the mic.
0: That he's about the people, about grassroots movement. The biggest grassroots movement in this country right now is the Black Lives Matter movement. So right now, we are going to honour this space and we are going to honour the memory of Michael Brown and we are going to honour all of the Black Lives lost this year and we're going to honour the fact that I have to fight through all these people who said, my life matters!
1: After the disruption... Marissa's actions were criticized by those on the right and the left. People argued about whether she was right to interrupt a candidate for as long as she did and deprive other people of their right to hear Sanders speak. Others said that it didn't make sense for her to interrupt the most progressive and liberal candidate who would have been most likely to support her cause. Interviewed on MSNBC shortly after the protest, Marissa Johnson described her motivation.
0: We really need to put pressure on people— who claim that they care about black lives. And here, the thing is, is that uh, especially on the left, candidates have this liberal rhetoric and we really need them to match it with their words and with their actions.
1: Holding political leaders accountable. That was Marissa's goal on that midsummer day three years ago. She interrupted one of the leading presidential candidates, not to deprive others of the right to hear Sanders speak, but to exercise her own right as a citizen, to demand action from the nation's leaders. This is Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we take a look at changing ideas of citizenship in the 21st century and how technology and modern culture define how we participate in government today.
0: Will those to be naturalized, please raise your right hand and repeat after me.
1: You're listening to a naturalization ceremony for new American citizens held in Las Vegas in 2016. After completing all the legal requirements for citizenship, the final step is a pledge of loyalty.
0: I hereby declare on oath
1: that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America
0: against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith
1: and allegiance, to the same. and allegiance to the same. Congratulations. At its most basic level, to be a citizen is to be a member of a political community who enjoys the rights and assumes the duties of membership. The idea of citizenship probably first emerged in ancient Greece in response to the threat of war. A few Greek families banded together to defend themselves. They agreed to protect each other's freedom against any foreign enemy, despite not being related by blood. These principles of mutual protection and obligation led to formalized laws and government. The government was obligated to protect the people, and the people were in turn obligated to obey the laws of the government. You know, a lot of the modern ideals we have for those things are
3: connected to ancient Greek ideals.
1: That's Earhart Graf, a researcher at the Center for Civic Media at the MIT Media Lab. In Greek democracy, every citizen, which at the time tended to be limited to wealthy men, was expected to actively participate in political governance. They believe they all had an equal share in power and responsibility. It's an ideal that remains with us.
3: I would say that most democratic theorists uh, advocate some version of participatory democracy in which everyone is involved in the governance of the polity. And so that means that they stay informed, they actively contribute to kind of efforts that serve the common good. And this becomes a way of life to a reasonable degree.
1: But the society we live in is very different than the ancient Greek city-states. We are significantly larger, more complex, and more diverse. As the circumstances of democracy have changed, so have our ideas of citizenship. Danielle Allen is a political philosophy professor at Harvard. She argues that there are three distinct kinds of citizenship today.
2: We've got the picture of the calm, rational, deliberate statesperson who processes all the issues people have and comes up with some sort of consensus solution.
1: Think men in tights and white-powdered wigs wielding quills. But that, we know, leaves a lot of people out. It is a fundamentally elitist model of citizenship It excludes members of society who don't have the same access to political power. During the progressive era of the late 19th century, many excluded groups, including women and minorities, began to demand more direct influence over government. These activists focused on expanding voting access to more and more people, and emphasized each person's duty as a citizen to learn the issues and vote responsibly.
2: So that produced a picture of healthy civic engagement that was about being well-informed, reading the news, processing the news, sorting out fact from fiction, and being careful in your choice of vote, basically, really concentrating on voting.
1: But what happens when even voting doesn't seem to be enough? During the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, we saw a new kind of citizen emerge.
2: The citizen as active defender of rights.
1: In this form of citizenship, citizens go beyond the ballot box and engage in direct action to ensure that all members of society receive equal protection under the law. These direct actions often take the form of boycotts, sit-ins, marches, or demonstrations that rely on mass mobilization, nonviolent resistance, and civil disobedience. So let's go back to that hot summer day in Seattle. You can actually see all three kinds of citizenship that Danielle Allen identifies, statesperson, informed citizen, and active defender, on display at the same time. Senator Bernie Sanders as the statesperson, the audience who had shown up to become informed on the issues and decide how to vote, and the protesters who use direct action to call attention to social injustice.
2: I think one of the biggest challenges for civic agents now in the US is that we have all three of these models bumping around in our imaginations and some of us are con- you know really committed to the dispassionate deliberate one and then we see the activists who are sort of wild-eyed and crazy and we think oh they don't know what civic engagement's about and conversely you know the The very committed, passionate advocates see the people who are trying to be deliberate and careful and they say, oh, those people are just pretending they don't have interests. They're obscuring the fact that they actually have all kinds of partial, interested, conflicted reasons that they're supporting that position. And so we have this battle about what is exactly the right picture of civic agency. And I want to say, look, you know, we need all of these kinds of models of civic agency.
1: But as the negative response to many Black Lives Matter protests show... 60 years after the Civil Rights Movement, America remains much more comfortable with the first two models of citizenship. The result is that many minorities, particularly African Americans, who do not have as much access to the first two forms of citizenship, statesmanship and voting, do not feel that they are treated as equal citizens.
0: The relationship that Black people have to citizenship and concepts of responsibility are fraught.
1: This is Chanel Matthews, Director of Communications for the Black Lives Matter Network.
0: I think if you divorce Black people's relationship to those two concepts separate from our experiences, um, it does us a huge disservice and also um, is a bit revisionist with regard to history. So the ways in which we participate as citizens is also wholly connected to the oppression that we're experiencing and to some extent, the ways in which both the state and I think the media talk about personal responsibility and citizenship are, un- are not contextualized for Black people. And so it leaves out um, mass incarceration, for example. Well, it leaves out contextually and um, historically our relationship to the state.
1: Earhart Graf thinks a lot about this kind of civic frustration. And for him, technology can be an answer. It can enable new types of citizenship and put people on more of an even footing. If we feel like we have low external political efficacy, right,
3: that we can't actually be sure that these institutions are responsive to our attempts to change them, then we are left to try and hold them accountable, to try and monitor the spaces that we do have some level of control on, maybe locally. Um, And that gives us an opportunity for civic engagement in this moment that leverages contemporary technologies. In the case of a group like Black Lives Matter, Right? Which is probably our most prominent campaign in terms of using social technologies to draw attention to an issue in the United States that was undercover, this being police violence against Black citizens. And in their work, you know, they've given us language around Black Lives Matter to help us talk about this issue. That also, by having a consistent hashtag, means we can see a set of otherwise unrelated events as part of a larger trend, which helps persist our ideas about that particular case.
1: According to Chanel Matthews, the online aspect of the movement has also brought more people into the conversation than would otherwise be able to
0: participate. Many of our members and our base are, they're fairly busy people. We're talking about people working sometimes to full-time jobs, taking care of aging parents and young children. Um, so, you know, the way that people engage online. Despite their potential to
1: expand civic engagement, Earhart Graf worries that the way social media platforms are designed may actually make engaging in good citizenship harder.
3: It's really hard to break through these kind of um, media ecosystems that have been created both by ourselves and reinforced by technology in order to achieve this kind of either larger audience um, or for this um, more equal ideological spectrum of information uh, that we can consume to inform us about government.
1: He's talking about the way news feeds function the way they surface certain articles or sites based on what you've clicked before or what you already prefer. That makes it easy for your Facebook or Twitter feeds to block out the stories and needs of all citizens in a community. After all, the algorithms that shape our online lives are designed to increase profit, not civic help. We saw this with the 2016 presidential election and the influence that fake news played.
3: Without those editors involved in that process, it allows for folks to say whatever they want to spread disinformation. And it's not just people. Like, we've also seen cases on Twitter of bots being used in order to change the political conversation on hashtags or around particular issues.
1: Another worry about the effect of social media on citizenship is that it's just too easy, that a like or a tweet doesn't really do any good and keeps people from doing the harder work of organizing, demonstrating, or voting. But Danielle Allen explains why it's more nuanced than that.
2: There has been a big debate about whether um, clicktivism is slacktivism, right? Just a sort of cheap way of being engaged or assuaging one's conscience. Um, I am convinced that actually very often that kind of clicktivism can be, in effect, a gateway experience into deeper civic engagement. I think it's true, in other words, that merely liking something or retweeting something um, is only a first step. Um, and isn't um, fully developed uh, civic agency or engagement. Um, but I do think it's, it's a stepping stone, it's a starting point.
1: And while everyone knows that online discourse can often be reductive, silly or cruel, for Chanel Matthews at Black Lives Matter, the online space can still be a place where real conversations can happen between people who disagree. You just have to model the online world after real-life
0: interactions. What we see happening that is most effective is people having meaningful one-on-one conversations with each other in everyday life. So if talking to your neighbors about um, important legislation to make sure that all families have access to childcare is what you would do in real life, then we encourage you to do that online too. Um, If dispelling myths about um, blackness and black people is something that you would do with your neighbors and your community, uh, then we'd expect that you show up that way online too.
1: The ancient Greeks banded together and became citizens to defend themselves against a foreign army. Today, our greatest threats are internal, the widening political, cultural, and economic divides that make it hard to solve common problems. But I think the idea of citizenship can still offer the way forward. For me, being a citizen can be about more than just legal rights and duties. At its most basic level, it is the promise to protect and care for people beyond your own blood. Being a good citizen then, is not just about voting or marching. It's also about extending respect and compassion to people who may look, think, or act very different from you, with the hope that out of many, we can still become one. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Olavi Kothamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa special thanks to alex kingsbury and dante ramos from the boston globe for their ongoing support if you enjoy this podcast you can support us by sharing us with your friends reviewing us on itunes or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation ministry of ideas is a proud member of hub and spoke a boston-centric collective of smart idea-driven podcasts you can check out all of our shows at hubandspokeaudio.org Today I want to tell you about a hub-and-spoke show called Soonish. The show is hosted by longtime science and technology journalist Wade Rausch, and through narrative and interview, he reveals the simple but profound point that while the future is shaped by technology, technology is shaped by us. One episode I highly recommend is called Meat Without the Moo, which, as you might guess, is all about the increasingly tasty frontier of lab-grown protein. Check it out at soonishpodcast.org.